You're listening to Historical AF, or if you cuss like we do, Historical As Fuck. This is your excited historian, Kina. And I'm your rockin' librarian, Ashley. We're here to deliver the funny, weird, spooky, morbid, and random historical nuggets you never knew you needed. Welcome, listeners, to episode five. Hello, Ashley, you're back. Hi, I'm back. I am. I missed everyone so much last week, and I'm like really, really upset that I missed the best topic ever because food is kind of my god. <laughs> so yeah, Kina did such an amazing job while I was gone, and Natalie did too. Thank you, Natalie. I'm sure she will be back and hanging out with us at some point. But yeah, yeah so huge thank you to Natalie. It's very nice of her to uh, let me be like, hey, I need you to do this last minute, blah, blah, blah. And then she did it. She came in clutch. We really appreciate it. So this week we are talking about Egypt and we're both super pumped about it. Oh, my God. I'm so excited. You can't see me, but I have covered my desk in Egyptian artifacts that I've had since I was a tiny human. I have like little sculptures of King Tut and some gods and I got like a Russian nesting doll of a mummy and I have a replica of some hieroglyphics that are on a tomb and uh, it's actually of the story I'm doing today so that's fun yeah like aesthetically Kina's really really bringing it today in her oh my god I will say my mom listens to this I want to say a big shout out to my mom so when I was little I was a big ass nerd and I would like dig in the yard for dinosaurs but it was actually chicken bones because my dad would feed chicken to the chickens which is tragic (laughs) <laughs> but uh, <laughs> she would notice how nerdy I was and she would buy me every book like she could come up with on things that I was interested in. And I was so obsessed with Egypt. So all this stuff came from my mom and she really fostered my love of history, which is probably why I'm a historian today. Nice. So, yay, mom. That's awesome. Special shout out to Kina's mom. I know. She could have just been like, shut up, nerd. But then she was like, nah, here's some books and let's go to a museum. And I was like, yay. So. Right, yeah, like, my parents put up with me digging a whole lot of holes in the yard. (laughs) And the one time that I accidentally left the tiny shovel on the back of my dad's truck and it fell off on the highway and I got in trouble. But, like, they were like, ah, she's learning. (laughs) It's totally fine. So, sorry, Dad, for losing your tiny shovel as a kid. (laughs) Yeah, and they used to have that. I think it was some magazine where you could buy, like, little dinosaurs that you could get the little tiny shovels and dig them out of the eggs or whatever. (sighs) Yes. I loved those. Those are so cool. No, I used to love that so much at like the museums when I would go visit my aunt in Houston. We would go to the museum down there and like dig for dinosaurs and shit. But anyway, but this is not about dinosaurs. This is about Egypt. Yeah, I actually went to the Houston Art Museum, I guess a month or so ago, and they had some really awesome mummies there. I was really impressed. Oh, man, I'm so jealous. That's awesome. Oh, I know. They're so, so great. Big fan. Big fan. Yeah. So. So how was your week, Ashley? My week was okay. I had waffled on whether I was going to talk about it or not. But the reason I was out last week, I'm going to be like upfront because it's uh, Mental Health Awareness Month. I had to go stay at the hospital for a little bit because my mental health is not on the up and up lately. So as soon as I got out of the hospital and was doing really good with that, I got hit with normal people sick and have this sinus infection from hell. So people might get to see a glimpse of this beauty that I keep shoving up my nose that Porkina has to witness. It's, <laughs> it's a vaporizer 
nose plug thingy that you stick up your nose and inhale and it helps like clear the shit out of your face. Kind of looks like a tampon. It definitely looks like a tampon. It looks like a tampon or like those weird, remember when we were little, the like candy lipsticks? Oh yeah. That's what it reminds me of. (laughs) I'm just going to randomly sniff that. So yeah, so I've just been like chilling like a villain and um, trying to like catch up on what I missed while I was out. But yeah, like I want to normalize this shit. Like mental health is really important. So I'm here. I'm off kilter, but I'm here. There is such a stigma against it. And I think that if more people did talk about it more, like I make it a point that when I talk about stuff, I try not to make it like it's a thing because, you know, you'll hear me say like, oh, my anxiety, like I have legit clinical anxiety. So I try to say it. I don't want to make a joke of it, but I just it's part of me. Yeah. My anxiety is part of why I'm such a hard worker and my OCD is partly why I'm such a good like note taker and you know why I'm so organized. So it's a part of me and let's uh cut the stigma here. This is right. a safe place. So I have like official diagnosis of depression, anxiety and PTSD and then conflicting diagnosis of bipolar 2 disorder. I suppress my shit like so much that I don't like actually seek help for it until it becomes too much of a problem to handle. So that's why like I had to take some time last week and had to miss out and everything. But I I wanted to be honest because, yeah, we need to destigmatize this shit. So then people like me don't spend all their time suppressing and not getting help. So um, I just wanted to like real quick, because it's Mental Health Awareness Month, give this resource out to our listeners for anyone that's struggling with mental health and stuff. Uh, you can go to suicide prevention on I'm sorry suicide prevention lifeline.org and it gives resources as well as multiple ways to connect to someone to talk you can talk over the phone you can use a chat line like a old school chat it has resources to connect with people for those that are deaf or hard of hearing as well as people who speak Spanish and then they also have a lot of like case specific links of help and counseling and all that for people uh, who are under 18 or LGBTQIA plus or veterans or have, you know, grieving, that kind of thing. So I just want to like spread that around and tell people that it's totally cool to um, take care of yourself. Absolutely. So yes, but now I am back and ready to hit the ground hobbling at least. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's a really good thing. I always tell people, you wouldn't tell a diabetic not to take insulin, so you shouldn't tell somebody that has a mental illness to not do what they need to do to make that better, too. It's just the same as a physical ailment. We all have to take care of ourselves, and if you are finding yourself where you need some help, there are resources out there, and you can even email us, and we will point you in other directions if you need that so yes yes we can do listener advisory as well as teaching (laughs) about stuff if you are having trouble finding resources we can absolutely help you so so yeah so now I'm just dealing with my my sinus stuff and that's fun but I'm super pumped to be home with my doggy and napping as much as possible yeah oh puppies yesterday I had kind of a meltdown because my dog had a uh, bump between his toes like it's more than a bump it was like a like festering boil and I panicked being like oh god he's gonna die but he's fine now he's asleep next to me I've had to 
you know, put Neosporin on it. <gasps> no, not uh, Neosporin. It's funny. I used to work at PetSmart. Don't sue me, PetSmart. But they were like, don't release the secrets of the PetSmart care specialist. But the secret was just Neosporin and Pedialyte. So, yeah. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so here's all of the secrets of PetSmart. <laughs> I might cut that. Don't That's totally me. fine. That's totally fine. <laughs> But it was funny because they're like, you can't ever divulge our secrets. And I'm like, it's basically Neosporin. And they'd give doxycycline, which is yep. like human stuff. I'm like, well, this isn't a secret. Yeah, that's good to know, though. But yeah, so Kina, how was your week besides Ruger's Paw? Oh, it's been very good. I have gotten into gardening and I bought a bunch of house plants because apparently when you turn 30, you get house plants and chickens and a lot of other boring things that are very exciting to me. So I bought a bunch of plants that are supposed to take all the pollen out of the air because I'm dying. Texas has a lot of pollen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm actually like really jealous of your house plants. I don't know if it's like a dog mom thing like or a childless thing, but. Like, I just want all the plants. Like, I have basil I'm growing in the window right now. And every day I'm, like, talking to it and spraying it with my little water <laughs> bottle. And I'm just like, hello, baby basil. Good morning. And, yeah, it's it's gotten weird. I almost killed one already. I was like, it needs more sun. And then I fried it. So now I'm trying to bring it back to life. So. Yeah, I did that with a plant someone gave me at a funeral. Also, can, side note, can we stop giving people plants at funerals? Oh, my God, I know. And my dad passed away. I kept on getting peace lilies. And I'm like, I have a cat. She'll eat it and die. Yes. Like, the one I got is like a fucking pine tree. Like, it's <laughs> literally a four. I didn't even know what it was. I had to put it on Facebook and be like, people who know plants, the fuck is this? <laughs> and people were like, oh, that's totally this type of pine. But you can't leave it outside if it gets under like 65 degrees. So uh -huh. I've had this like tiny pine tree growing on my kitchen table until it got warm enough to put it outside and then it got too much sun so it burnt a little bit so now it's like in a weird spot on my deck <laughs> just like don't just don't don't give people plants don't don't send yeah. flowers don't give plants no i know we actually asked for people to make donations to the humane society because my dad yes. loved his dogs more than anything and we still got plants and i was like eh, this is toxic <sighs> i'm going on record right now when i die don't want plants i want donations to the humane society or i want grocery cards for my family yeah don't yeah, even bring a casserole just <laughs> don't gift cards so yes. many hams so many casseroles in my time oh i know oh. Uh, speaking of uh temperamental trees we got a lime tree too <gasps> what oh my god it has little baby limes and they're so cute but apparently when it gets cold we'll have to either cover it and give it a light or bring it inside but we like planted it outside so no, i don't know what we're gonna do but got little baby limes little persian lime tree oh my god that's so cool i want a, i want a citrus tree so bad but i have no idea a where i'd put it and b how i'd keep it alive yeah, well, apparently they grow really well in South Texas, so I'm excited. And then I discovered that the tree that was here when we moved in is a banana tree. What? What? I'm so excited. Oh, my God. I'm so like jealous. It was like a happy accident. I didn't know what it was. And then I was like, we were at the nursery looking at lime trees, and I was like, that's a banana. But that it's is also, wonderful. It's also right outside our, like, we have a, our bath, our master bathroom has a window. 
that's like frosted but the oh. banana tree like brushes up against the window and it kind of looks like a person like scratching the window so that's terrifying yeah but, that uh, would scare the shit out of me you get used to it <laughs> unless there's actually a person out there and i don't notice it because i think it's the banana tree and then i'm just dead and then i'll be on the morbid or morbid segment Yes, next time we do food, we'll be like, that one time, <laughs> Kina died, and it was because she thought it was a banana tree, and it was a man. Yeah. The banana <laughs> tree? <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> anyway, we have so derailed, but with that, I mean, I can start, I can kind of segue, because since I missed the food segment last week, I had to do one of my roles on a food stuff. Ooh, yeah, do the food. Okay, so mine are kind of short this week because I'm under the influence of so many medications right now trying to get rid of this cold stuff. So, shocker, mine are not. <laughs> <laughs> but hey, it's a balance. Ooh, I but like yes. research too much. Yeah. I do too, but I just like brain fog. It was just not working. So, okay. So the first role I had was historical AF. And first, before I go into my actual topic, I want to say that I'm drinking hot tea because I haven't had a voice for three days and I was like determined to be able to talk today. And I put honey in it and I was like, Ooh, look at me tying it back to Egypt in my drink. Because honey was found in the pharaoh's tombs, and that's how they found out that honey doesn't go bad. Ooh. Because it was in there for, like, thousands of years, and it was still edible. And last week, you and Natalie talked about, you know, who was the guy who, like, looked at the cocoa beans and was like, I'm going to eat the middle of that. It's delicious. Yeah. And so, like, I want to know who walked into, like, a pharaoh's tomb and was like looking at mummified cats and like a dead body and muslin and then was like, hey, there's this jar of honey. I happen to have some tea. Like, <laughs> I don't know. I have this whole scenario in my head. I may have overthought it for like the last four days. So, um, <laughs> so yeah, so I've got the honey. I had to tie it back, but I really loved it. So for my historical AF, I just want to talk a little bit about Egypt's national dish. Ooh. It is called Kashari. K-O-S-H-A-R-I. It's got several different spellings, but uh, that's the, the like across the board, the one that people go with. And it is served everywhere. Restaurants, people do it at home. They serve it in like street vendor carts and stuff like that. And And like I found this really fascinating. I got my notes a little out of order, but I found this fascinating what is it called? Review. There we go. That's a word. Review. <laughs> Words are hard. From someone on a travel site that said her name was uh, Hiba Fatin Bazari. And she said, as the Kashari man scoops, he knocks his metal spoon against the sides of the bowl, making the Kashari symphony that you won't hear anywhere else. When the Kashari man prepares an order of more than four, the restaurant fills with sounds as if it was a rehearsal for a concert. The restaurants of Kashari are very noisy. One sits to eat while the Kashari man practices his drums in your ears. Ooh. So, like, there's a whole experience with making this. So. Very what, poetic. I know. It's, like, very pretty. I very much appreciate what that person wrote. So, what goes into Kashari? It's a little weird to me. 
this is one of those dishes that I think I would like to try, but I would never have looked at that stuff sitting in my cabinet and thrown it together. So Kashari mixes lentils, macaroni noodles, and rice into a single dish. Huh. And then it's topped with a spicy tomato sauce that uses a special Middle Eastern spice blend, garbanzo beans, and fried onions. That's a lot happening. It's it's a whole lot going on. So basically, where's my stuff? I always do my notes out of order. Okay. So the weird thing is that rice and macaroni noodles are not indigenous to Egypt. These were things that were cultivated or grown in other regions and brought in through trade routes. So oh, that makes sense. Yeah. So the dish originated most likely in India as kichri during British occupation. And mm-hmm. then and then it was just comprised of lentils and rice. But when the British then the British brought it to Egypt in the 1800s because it was inexpensive to fix and it was very filling for not a lot of, you know, not a lot of surface area on your plate. It was a big hit. Also, I'm reading this book series right now. I have to like tangent this because I can't stop thinking about it. I'm reading this book series right now, a trilogy called The Daughter of Smoke and Bone. It's a oh, YA yeah. series. And reading the key tree, it makes me think of a lot of the names of the, of the characters like Kismet and Carew and Kaz and all all that anyway so I keep going back you can tell we're all like YA librarians here (laughs) yes yes once a YA librarian always a YA librarian thug life but yes so what goes into Kashiri specifically I'm gonna just kind of break it down I'm not gonna like tell you exact measurements but the the thing that's like the crowning achievement of this dish is the flavorful spicy tomato sauce and it's made with a special spice, spice blend that's called baharat, which is Arabic for spice. Oh. It's an all-purpose spice blend that is used in Middle Eastern cuisine. I had never heard of it. So I looked up what goes into it. And it typically contains black peppercorns, cumin seeds, coriander seeds, whole cloves, cardamom seeds, paprika, cinnamon, and nutmeg. I have all of that in my spice cabinet right now. Yeah, so, oh my gosh, so you do this whole thing, like you toast stuff and grind it down and then you put it in your tomato sauce to simmer and then you get your rice and lentils and macaroni noodles and mix all that together and then put a scoop of the sauce on top of it and then do garbanzo beans and then you, that have been, all this has been prepared and then you do crispy fried onions, like onion strings on top. Ooh. So, like... I feel like it's something that I would eat because I wanted a weird experience, but then I would love it so much I would eat too much and then never eat it again because I was miserable. (laughs) We have a saying in the Stye's household that if you don't eat and hate yourself, then you haven't eaten enough. So, Real talk. We have such good relationships with food around here. Yeah, you don't stop when you're full, you stop when you're miserable. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yep. That's that's pretty much how I live life. But yeah, so it's that's all I've really got for the national dish. But it sounds delicious. And like, I know, Kina, you like to, like, Zeke gives you a word and you make a dinner around it. Uh-huh. You need to, like, throw a curveball and make him some kashari. And I kind of want to make it, too. I should. Yeah, that's the thing that we do. He'll say something like last weekend. He said pineapple. 
what was what did I make that day? Wasn't it like Poly- Polynesian food from? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. So my husband yelled Polynesian, and then I made a whole dish of Polynesian food, and then I made drinks that were in pineapples. But all the recipes were actually from Disney World because we really like Disney. That's so cool. I need to start I doing stuff it. like that. Oh my gosh. Oh my god. So yeah, we did our we eloped, and then we spent all the money we would have spent on a wedding to go to Disney World for a honeymoon. <laughs> So and it was the best food of my life and the best drinks. And you can drink in every theme park. So it's like the best adult Disney experience. So if you think it's just for kids, it is not. And you should do adult Disney. Oh, man, I want to do that so bad. I want to take like a girl's trip and go to Disney World. Like my mom did it and had so much fun with her friends. And I was so jealous. Like every day I'd call and be like, what'd you do today? <laughs> Tell me all about it. And but yeah, like it looks so cool. We went to Vegas for our honeymoon, which also had delicious food, but there were no rides. So, well, there were, but I wasn't about to do some of those rickety rides. So, sorry, Vegas. Oh, man. We went to Universal, too, and those rides are insane. And oh. I'm afraid of heights, which is funny because I'm six foot. You wouldn't think I'd be afraid of heights. But yeah, some of them are very, very high. And Zeke would always be like, oh, is that a screw loose or something? And he would, like, psych me out. So I'd be, like, terrified until it was over. And then I'd be like, yeah, that was the greatest thing ever. Woo! That is yeah. such a Zeke thing to do. I love that. Oh, my God. Yeah. They're... Oh, I miss I miss Florida. <laughs> <laughs> Although I have a Six Flags here I haven't been to. So when you oh come my God. and visit. I was going to say, so I've been thinking about coming and visiting. <laughs> we might have to go to Six Flags. <laughs> Yeah, we have a Six Flags and a SeaWorld really close. We haven't been to those yet. Oh, my God. I used to go to that SeaWorld when I was little, and I need to go back. Yeah, it has, a, I think, three rides. Don't at me. I don't remember. But, yeah, there's. <laughs> we'll find out, people. Don't at us. Yeah. Add. Add. Yes. Add. What? Huh? All right. I don't know. All right. So, for my story, I'm going to start with Morbid, which is different from all the other or- orifices. What? <laughs> Shit. all right so i'm gonna start with morbid which is different from all our other episodes because we usually avoid those yes but this is gonna help me set up my other two stories nice (laughs) all right so i'm gonna talk about mummification in ancient egypt so we can't really talk about egypt and morbid shit without diving into mummification So that's actually a process of embalming and treating the dead body so that all the moisture from the body is removed, leaving only a dried form that would not easily decay. It was very important to Egyptian religion to preserve the dead body as lifelike as possible because they really wanted to party in the afterlife and they really thought that that was an important part of that to be able to do that. So they were actually so good at mummification that even today we can view a mummified body and have a good idea of what they actually look like, which is insane to me. That's 3,000 years ago. Yeah, that's so cool to me. I know. Like being able to image a mummy and like see how it looked in real life. Yeah, no, I love it. Yeah, and they actually have those um, those CSI workers that can take a mummy and make them look like they would have looked like in life. It's just amazing. Oh my gosh, yes. So mummification was practiced throughout most of the early Egyptian history, but the earliest mummies from prehistoric times, they were probably accidental, which I didn't really realize that. So because of the dry sand in the air, it actually preserved some of the bodies that were buried in shallow pits that were dug into the sand. 
But to me, I was kind of like, if you see a body in a shallow pit, what's your first thought? Like, ooh, they're mummified. Mine would be like, what What happened? <laughs> Is, are you supposed to be here, sir? Are you trespassing? Yeah, <laughs> like, like, why is this dude or duet in a shallow grave? Like, were they murdered or it's just, I don't know. Yeah, like, oh. I would be like, oh, they have a stab wound, not like, they're so well preserved. I know, right? That's probably, that's where I went. I watch way too much true crime documentaries. Same. I need to back off. All right. No. <laughs> Anywho, about 2600 BCE, during the 4th and 5th dynasties, Egyptians actually began to mummify the dead intentionally. According to Egyptian lore, the god Osiris was the very first mummy. So that was yeah. pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. I did not know that. I didn't either. <laughs> the practice continued and developed for well over 2000 years into the Roman period, which was circa 30 BCE to 364 CE. And again, I'm using BCE before Common Era and then CE Common Era because that's what they use now. So, trying to make it uh, consistent across all podcasts now. Uh, yes, I appreciate that. I really hate <laughs> saying before Christ. It's before Common. Yeah. So, with any one period, the quality of mummification actually varied. It depended on the price that was paid for it. The most prepared and preserved mummies are from the 18th through the 20th dynasties of the New Kingdom. And those are the ones that include, like, King Tut, the ones that we actually know about. Okay, cool, cool, cool. Everybody knows about King Tut. So yeah. I'm going to be talking about a lot of the practices that actually happen in the New Kingdom, because that's what we know the most about. So the process. The mummification process took 70 days. Seventy. And uh, I'm going to regret the ads that I get from my search history, but I Googled <laughs> how long embalming takes today. Yikes. <laughs> It's 45 minutes. So today we spend 45 minutes on a person, but they spent 70. Oh, that's, that's, that's a lot. And you, you're going to get the weirdest knock <laughs> on your door from NSA. I know. It's all part of the art. <sighs> the sacrifices I made for the podcast. It's okay. I did a lot of Googling about how Egyptians used moldy bread to treat wounds last night. So. <laughs> Yeah. All right. So, embalmers were actually special priests that were also there to treat and wrap the body. Beyond knowing the correct rituals and prayers to be performed at various stages, the priests were actually really knowledgeable in human anatomy, which I thought was interesting. You wouldn't think of a priest being super into uh, anatomy. Yeah, that is really surprising. Um, I guess, like, yeah, some of the stuff that I ran across said that the priests were also like doubled in as not only the embalmers, but like the doctors and stuff. So mm -hmm. they had a lot of like really big cross purposes. I even saw the priests being called magicians and oh. doctors. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, spoiler alert, they have to know where your organs are to take them out. That's what I'm about to get into. So a little foreshadowing. So I guess yeah. you would have to know the anatomy if that's your job is to take out certain things. Truth. So the chief embalmers often wore the mask of the God of Nubis while they were doing this, which I would imagine, like, if you're trying to cut a precise, like, incision, and you got a giant-ass mask on your head, wouldn't it be hard to see? <laughs> yes, but are they treating it kind of like the plague doctors with the mask did and, like, stuff the herbs up in the nose of it so they wouldn't smell the dead body? Oh, that's smart. That's really smart. Maybe that's what they did, because I'm sure it would be very smelly. Yeah, I'm trying to think, like, 
I'm I'm picturing like a, a normal modern day autopsy, like cutting the Y incision, cracking and all that. And mm-hmm. how I'm trying to picture like a coroner doing that with a mask on. And it's kind of freaking me out. <laughs> Stuff of nightmares. Yes. So the first step in this process was to remove all the internal parts that might decay rapidly. The brain was removed first by carefully inserting a special hooked instrument up through the nostrils in order to pull out the bits of brain tissue. Yikes. Yikes. <laughs> I, uh, I always, I'm going to refer to the movie The Mummy probably a thousand times this episode. Because okay, it's good, because I was too. <laughs> but I like the part where she's like, they shove it up your nose and they scramble it up and then pull it right out. So there's, there you go. Watch that movie. Love it. <laughs> the, the listeners can't see, but we both made the same shove the hook, skirt it around motion. <laughs> yes. But if you join our Patreon, you can see it in the bloopers. Yeah. Shameless <laughs> love. <laughs> All right. So it was actually a delicate operation, one that could easily disfigure the face. So King Tut actually had a broken skull. And for a really long time, they thought that was his cause of death. But now they know that it actually came from the mummification process. Huh. That's good to know. Yeah. Ruger Sorry. agrees. Ruger agrees. He is very enthusiastic about ancient Egypt, too. Is he barking oh. a cat? Because those are also worshipped in Egypt. He is barking at a cat. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> All right, so then the embalmers removed the organs from the abdomen and the chest through a cut that was usually made on the left side of their abdomen. They left only the heart in place because they believed it was the center of a person's being and intelligence. Huh. Yeah. They also believed that in the afterlife that you were judged by your heart. And then they also put a protective, powerful amulet that was called a heart scarab over it. Oh, that's cool. I'm, like, fascinated by scarabs in general. Yeah, it's really interesting. That's cool. All right, so the priest who actually made that incision was also known as a slicer or a ripper up. Huh. I know, right? I wish I was a slicer. I'm just going to start calling (laughs) myself that. New nickname. Yes. The other organs were preserved separately with the stomach, liver, lungs, and intestines placed in several boxes or jars that we call canopic jars today. The canopic jars were actually buried with the mummy, and in later mummies, the organs were treated, wrapped, and replaced within the body. Even so, the unused canopic jars continue to be part of the burial ritual. So if you've seen the mummy, I wasn't lying, I'm going to bring this up. The canopic jars are what the, you know, if you touch them, the mummy would like, Suck out your essence. Yes. In a sandstorm. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I have an addiction to that movie. It's really sad. Oh my god, I know. And it has a really dear place to me because my dad passed away in 2011. And when he was in the hospital, he had, I think, four pulmonary embolisms. So he's in the hospital and they're treating him for that. But uh, he was really doped up. <laughs> he kept on quoting the movie and like because I'm a librarian and they were like what are you talking about and he's like the movie the mummy and they're like we don't understand and then I showed up and they were like what do you do for a living I was like oh I'm a librarian they're like okay this makes a lot of sense (laughs) (laughs) because she's a librarian yeah that's wonderful no I like I definitely want to be like you want to be Indiana Jones I want to be Evie from the mummy Mm -hmm. 
like i'm a librarian and like she's gorgeous and has moxie and i love it so yes i love it it really holds you know even though it's an older movie now still as good as it was when i first saw it for real and also i just have like an ungodly crush on brendan fraser so yes absolutely peak brendan fraser thousand percent oh my god (laughs) although in my like research when i was looking around for different topics for my notes like we talked about a lot of the characters in the mummy they have the names of people who actually existed in history but they're like completely different than the actual people oh absolutely i'm gonna talk about one of them okay Um, cool 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 yeah they have absolutely nothing to do with the movie (laughs) yeah yeah so anyway really cool names that's yes probably why they picked them yes yeah all right so next the embalmers removed all the moisture from the body (laughs) they did yeah right they did this by covering the body with natron which is a type of salt and it has really great drying properties and then they placed additional natron packets inside the body when the body had dried out completely the embalmers removed the internal packet and then lightly washed the natron off the body so it's like sticking those silica packets in your gym bag yeah (laughs) just like a very morbid version of that yes very fucked up version yes yeah so the result was a very dried out but recognizable human form which i mentioned before it was a really big deal for them to be recognizable because they were really prepping the body for the afterlife that's awesome to make the mummy seem even more lifelike sunken areas of the body were filled out with linen and other materials and false eyes were added. And if you listen to our last podcast, you will know that some of those things that were shoved in the dead bodies was onions. Yes, that like blew me away. I never <laughs> knew that. Why? Why? I mean, I know y'all talked about why, but why? <laughs> yeah, like Ramses had them in his eyeballs. So those would be his false eyes. And then they had them in other areas like their cav- like chest cavity and thorax. Yeah, onions were a big deal. So if you want to know more about onions throughout history, listen to our last episode. Yes, yes. And then if you want to look at onions in an important literary book, read Holes. Oh, yeah. (laughs) That's one of my favorite books. I'm sorry. I kept thinking about it the whole time I was listening to y'all. But yeah, so (laughs) anywho. All right. So next, they begin wrapping. Each mummy needed hundreds of yards of lemon, not lemons, linen. They needed hundreds of yards of linen. So the linen on one mummy from the 11th dynasty measured 9,095 feet, which is enough linen to cover three tennis courts. Wow. That's a really weird unit of measurement, but I like it. I I found (laughs) it in like the craziest Egyptian facts about mummification. Oh, man, those are the best lists. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Most of this came from like the Smithsonian and like Britannica and like very scholarly, but a couple of these little added facts came from that. Yes, I love it. The priests carefully wound the long strips of linen around the body, sometimes even wrapping each finger and toe separately before wrapping the entire hand and foot. So a lot of attention went to wrapping these bodies. In order to protect the dead from a mishap, amulets were placed along the wrappings and prayers and magical words were written on some of the linen strips. That's cool. Yeah. 
Often the priest placed a mask of the person's face between the layers of the head bandages. At several stages, the form was coated with a warm resin, and then the wrapping resumed once again. At last, the priest wrapped the final cloth or shroud in place and secured it with linen strips, and the mummy was complete. The priests preparing the mummy were not the only one busy during the time. Although the tomb preparation usually began long before the person actually died, there was now a deadline, and the craftsmen, workers, and artists had to work very quickly. There was so much to be placed into the tomb that everybody was hard at work, so they would add furniture, statues, wall paintings, religious and daily scenes, and they also had foods, uh, prayers on the walls. Through a magical process, these models, pictures, and lists would become the real thing when needed in the afterlife. So they thought that if they drew on the wall everything that they would need in the afterlife, that it would come to life when they were nice. So they really spent most of their... It's not like they dreaded death or thought anything negatively. They just thought it was a natural next step. So they spent most of their living life not obsessing about death, but just naturally preparing for it. So it wasn't... Yeah, I mean, it's like a really good way to like manifest what you want your afterlife to be like. Yeah. Yeah. So to them, it wouldn't be anything morbid. So... You know, like today, if you're planning your funeral, people are going to be like, what are you What are you doing? But to them, it's just complete natural. It was very... Whatever. Uh, I think I've mentioned something funeral related in every episode at this point, so they can suck true. it. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> that's my thing, I guess. <laughs> All right. So as part of the funeral, priests perform special religious rites on the tomb's entrance. The most important part of the ceremony was called the opening of the mouth, A priest would touch various parts of the mummy with a special instrument to open those parts of the body to allow them to enjoy those parts of the body in the afterlife. So by touching the instrument to the mouth, the dead person could now speak and eat in the afterlife. Oh, okay. So it's like a head, shoulders, knees, and toes, eyes, ears, mouth, and nose situation. Yeah, that way you could use everything. Okay, cool, cool, cool. So now he's ready for his journey in the afterlife. The mummy was placed in his coffin or coffins in the burial chamber and the entrance was sealed up. Such elaborate burial practices might suggest that the Egyptians were preoccupied with the thoughts of death. On the contrary, they began early to make plans for their death because of their great love of life. So pretty much what I just said. Uh, They could think of no life better than the present, and they wanted to be sure that it would continue in their afterlife. So they're just like, I'm digging life. I want to make sure this keeps going. So it wasn't a morbid thing at all. Party don't stop, man. (laughs) So why preserve the body? Uh, The Egyptians believed that the mummified body was the home of the soul and the spirit. So, if the body was destroyed, the spirit might be lost. So, the idea of the spirit was complex involving three spirits, actually. It's called the Ka, the Ba, and the Ak. The Ka, a double of the person, would remain in the tomb and needed the offerings and objects that were in the tomb. The Ba, or the soul, was free to fly out of the tomb and return to it at any time. And it was the Ak that was translated as spirit that traveled through the underworld to the final judgment in the entrance of the afterlife. So to the Egyptian, all three were essential. So yeah, that would make preparation like make even more sense. Yeah. To make sure that those three parts of you are where they need to go. Exactly. So for the Ka, they needed to make sure everything was in the tomb that could possibly ever needed 
And then for the oct, they needed to make sure the body was preserved so that it could actually make it to judgment and then to the afterlife. That is awesome. And then the Ba is probably just like, just your ghost. It could travel wherever, do whatever the yeah. fuck it wanted. <laughs> Hell yeah. Churros. <laughs> so who is mummified? Not everybody. <laughs> After death, the pharaohs of Egypt were usually mummified and buried in elaborate tombs. Members of nobility and officials were often received in the same treatment, and occasionally some common people, but the process was very expensive, so if you couldn't afford it, you didn't get it. Which is not unlike today, because funerals are expensive even today, so if you think about like your grand-ass funeral, it's based on money and your importance. Um and then if you're poor as shit, then you're getting cremated in a Walmart bag. You get the pit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think, like, my dad, when he passed away, he knew he was dying. So he was making all his funeral plans. And he's like, I basically just got a Walmart bag and a cardboard box. We're good. It's <laughs> like, oh, dear God. <laughs> Gallows humor. I love it and hate it at the uh, same time. <laughs> yeah, but it's really not that... Far from the truth. It's basically yeah. a cardboard box with a scoopy up in a Walmart bag. <laughs> For real. I mean, at least it's all contained. So that's good. That's true. So for religious reasons, some of the animals were also mummified. These sacred bulls from the early dynasties had their own cemetery. Baboons, cats, birds, and crocodiles, which had great religious significance, were often mummified, especially in the later dynasties. Um, and I saw somewhere that the most mummies are actually cats. Yes, I like looked up artifacts that were shown in like uh, Egyptian artifacts in museums around the world. And the majority of them were cats, which just look like little tubes with ears. Yeah, <laughs> so, like they're like burritos. Like it's weird. <laughs> it's true. I think every museum I've ever been to has had a mummified cat that has mummies. Yeah, there's that makes a lot of sense to me, too. I hope they died of natural causes. Oh, me too. Oh. All right. So in ancient Egypt, a goddess named Merit Sager. I, I didn't look that up. Sorry. She would take the form of a cobra and was said to protect the Valley of the Kings. According to legend, she would blind and poison any robbers that tampered with tombs. I don't think that really worked out considering how many grave robbers there were. But it's a nice thought. King Tut, who we're going to talk about in a little bit, he is actually the only royal mummy discovered that was intact. So most of them were robbed before archaeology was a thing. That makes sense, especially since, I mean, they were so opulent. Like, of course, they got their shit stolen. Oh, absolutely. But if you were a Tomb Raider and you got caught, it wasn't good. (laughs) Do you lose your hands? I hope they lose their hands. No, they would have the soles of their feet beaten and then be publicly impaled by a wooden stick. That's so much worse. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yes, it is. Like, fine, impale me. Don't beat my feet first. All right. And then I'm going to end on something just horrible. All right. So later, medicinal preparations made from the powdered mummies became popular between the 12th and the 17th century. So, during that time, mummies were disentombed and burned to meet the demand for this mummy medicine. So, not only were these tombs robbed, 
during this time, people thought that they were medicine and needed them. So a lot of them were just tragically destroyed. I hope their fire smelled like onions. <sighs> and then Europeans actually wanted to boil the mummy and then use the oil to treat bruising, stomach aches, and other ailments. Okay. So that really hurts my heart to think of how many people were just desecrated. To yes. Yeah, I mean, like there's so many like wives of pharaohs that they say, oh, their tomb might be somewhere, but we haven't found it. And it very mm-hmm. well could be because there is no tomb anymore because they were treated this way. Oh, absolutely. And then I'm going to end, according to folklore, if you disturbed a mummy's tomb, it led to your death. But obviously, since they uh, boiled and burned mummies, that didn't really work. They should have been cursed if they were about to desecrate human remains. For real, like, I get wanting to study shit, but, like, don't don't steal people's stuff. Yeah. And, you know, Carter discovered King Tut. And then whenever he opened the tomb, people were very superstitious about it because of the curse. And a couple of people actually died from unnatural causes. So the story was sensationalized by the media. So the idea of the curse of Tut's tomb is pretty, pretty out there. But it was probably you opened a tomb that had a bunch of bacteria in it that hadn't seen the light of day in 3000 years. That's probably more like it. Yeah, and I know, like, one of the guys, um, I can't remember which one, but he was killed by, like, his wife, like, stabbed or shot. Like, King Tut didn't do that to you. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think somebody got bit by cobra, but you're in the middle of the desert in Egypt. Uh, I mean, I would expect no less. If I was in Egypt, I'd be looking for cobras everywhere. Oh, yeah. No, I look for cobras in my own bedroom because anxiety... <laughs> So, like, if I ever go to Egypt, someone's just going to have to carry me on their shoulders the entire time. Oh, unless Cobras can find. Yeah. <laughs> I'll be Googling that as soon as we're done recording. <laughs> All right. So, that is that on uh, Morbid. Cool, cool, cool. Okay. So, I'm going to do, I rolled Spooky AF, and I'm going to do a little bit different than we normally do. So, I am going to talk just a little bit about the best known ghost story from ancient Egypt. Ooh. It, and then I'm going to read just a little excerpt from it. So it's mostly just known as uh, titled a ghost story, but it has also been called Konsimab and the ghost. The story dates from the late new kingdom of Egypt, circa like 1570 to 1069 BCE. Oh, and wow. it's specifically the, oh God, I forgot to look this up, the Ramseside period. Mm-hmm. And that was from like 1186 to 1077 BCE. So, and BCE throws me off because it does the backwards counting thing. So mm-hmm. I should have written down how many years that was, but I'm just going to be like, whoa, that was a lot of years and go with that. <laughs> so it was printed on pottery. That the outside of it was littered with hieroglyphs. And so it was found on the fragments of this pottery called Ostraca or Ostraca. But it was found in like, yeah, like fragments. I already said that. The pieces that were scattered. And -hmm. they finally pieced most of the story together. And scholars like Georges Poissonier in 1960 common era and then Jürgen von Beckerath in 1992 
claim are copies of a much older story from the Middle Kingdom of Egypt, but it kind of goes back and forth. So basically it focuses on the traditional view of the afterlife in Egypt being a paradise. So kind of in, in line with your story of preparing the tombs and not fearing death and all that. So mm-hmm. making sure it's a paradise and there's several other stories like the lay of the harper or a dispute between a man and a soul that kind of deal with this too. But so in the story, Konsumab reflects this view in his conversation with a ghost. So basically this high priest of Omun, Konsumab, and he like, this person comes to him and is like, Hey, there's a restless spirit whose tomb was deteriorated basically, or like, just trashed. Mm-hmm. So Kosamob goes to, so it's across four pots total. And hang on, let me go back. So before I get into the story itself, so the, the Ostraka today are housed in museums in Paris, Florence, Vienna, and Turin. And each one relates to another section of the story. Oh, okay, cool. And then the conclusion to the tale hasn't been found yet. Ooh, mystery. And there's a little bit. So it starts abruptly where uh, Kosimov sits down next to the spirit and he cries for him and is like, I'm so sorry that your tomb was desecrated. You know, what can I do for you? And it. Okay, so here's the. After Kosimov sits down and cries with him, the spirit tells him. When I was alive upon the earth, I was overseer of the treasury of King, wow, I did not look that up, Mentu Hotep, and I was lieutenant of the army, having been at the head of men and nigh to the gods. I went to rest in year 14 during the summer months of the king of Upper and Lower Egypt, Mentu Hotep. He gave me my four canopic jars and my sarcophagus of alabaster, and he had done for me all that is done for one in my position. He laid me to rest in the tomb with its shaft of ten cubits. See, the ground beneath has deteriorated. Deter- wow, that's a word. Deteriorated <laughs> and dropped away. The wind blows there and seizes the tongue. Now, as for your having promised me, I shall have a sepulchre prepared anew for you. I have it four times already that it will be done in accordance with them. But what am I to make of the promises you have just made to me, so that all these things may succeed in being executed? So this high priest is like, let me fix it. You deserve to have your peace and have your rest. So tell me how to help you and I will do whatever I can. And the Mm -hmm. ghost is like, look, I had all this good stuff, but your wishes and promises don't do anything for me now. Um, Like I recently told someone in a personal situation, you can throw blessings in a creek all day, but it doesn't make it a river. Ooh, (laughs) that's deep. Oh, yeah. I'll <laughs> tell you that story off air. But anyway, so my basically, this priest is like, I swear to you that I'll have this done. And the spirit's like, yeah, no, I don't think so. So let's see. And then the high priest says, of what use are the things you would do unless a tree is exposed to sunlight? It does not sprout foliage, hmm. which is like, if you don't have the things you need to grow then uh or to be at peace then you won't be able to have this home so the priest sends out these soldiers to find the spirit's tomb 
Mm-hmm. And where in my notes did that go? Okay, so the priest assured him that he would have a new tomb, five male servants, five maid servants, and they would bring him food and water and offering as offerings daily, but the spirit was still like, nah. So priest sends the men to search for the tomb, and they find it, uh, quote-unquote, 25 cubits distance along the king's causeway at Deir al-Bari, and they return and tell him about it. So he goes and is super pleased with it and the info, and he's like super excited to tell the, the spirit. So the story so far ends with the line, he returned in the evening to sleep in the knee and he dot, dot, dot. But the rest of the tale is lost and the knee in the line refers to the necropolis at Thebes. And the, the story, what's like so cool about it is that it's kind of circular because it starts with an unknown narrator coming to Konsenab and telling him about the spirit in the necropolis at Thebes. And mm-hmm. then it ends with him going back to the necropolis. So some scholars have like basically looked at this as like an elliptical story where he's telling himself in the beginning as the unknown narrator that the spirit is on. Un- well and like it's this loop where nothing actually ever gets accomplished mm-hmm. but the thought is there and if they could find that extra pot maybe they could get the final piece of the puzzle so it's really cool like it's it's not like super creepy chills down your spine spooky but it's like the biggest hailing like ghost story for that area Ooh, that's but, really yeah. interesting Yeah, so I really love it, and I really want to, like, find it and read it in its entirety. Uh, I just haven't done that yet. (laughs) That's really cool. You didn't mention Delabari, which is where Hatshepsut is buried, and I, like, geeked out a little bit. (laughs) That's awesome. She's one of, like, the most successful female rulers in history of women. Yes, we love our badass women. Are you ready for some weird? Hell yeah. Uh, So what happens when somebody pulls a fast one on the religion of an entire kingdom? A damn mess. Yes. That's what. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to talk about the train wreck and or slash dumpster fire. That was the reign of Akhenaten. Awesome. I love. Yes, I love Akhenaten. I'm fascinated. (laughs) And why is this weird? You may ask. Because, according to conspiracy theorists, he was an alien. (laughs) My God. Obviously. Oh, my God. I I actually watched Ancient Aliens today. (laughs) I'm so glad you said that because that ties into my next story. Okay, good. All right. So, ancient Egyptian mythology is a complicated beast and actually has approximately 2,000 gods. And it's all part of this sophisticated bureaucracy of priests that oversaw the management of the religion across the entire empire. So, as you can imagine, if a dude walks in and decides, we're going to believe in one god now, shit's going to hitteth the faneth. People (laughs) were not happy. (laughs) Thank you for that 10 things I hate about you quote, by the way. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) So, Aminotep IV was the son of Aminotep III and his wife, T during the 18th dynasty 
And I'm going to take a quick historical detour because Queen T is a badass. So she exerted an enormous amount of influence on the courts of both her husband and her son. And she has been known to communicate directly to rulers of foreign nations, which at this time was unheard of. That is phenomenal. I know. And it's even more like phenomenal when you think she, she wasn't royal. Like, they believe her mother was a servant and her father was just a priest. Huh. What? So she was still living at court and would have had an elevated status, but she was 0% royal. She has been described as intelligent and diligent, and she's the first queen of Egypt to have her name on official acts. Dude. What? That's big. Yes. So T is featured prominently on her husband's monuments and has seen... To, like show that she had real power more so than any queen before her and her name is even written in a cartouche which a cartouche is like kind of like that uh how do you describe it it's kind of like an oval that has like two lines and then kind of like a a stand underneath it and that's what signified a king's name but her name was written in a cartouche oh so, cool that's a really big deal She's also depicted in statues as the same height as her husband, which might not sound like much, but any previous statue of a pharaoh, his queen was considerably shorter than him, and that would show his power and prestige. But in all her statues, she was seen as an equal. Oh, man, I have a new hero. Right? And she was an equal in anything that they did in life, too. So festivals, when they met dignitaries from foreign countries, and even with, like, domestic and foreign policy, she was an equal. She is seen in every inscription, statue, and letter of the couple as their partners in domestic and public life. And scholars actually think that they actually loved each other, which is unheard of, too. Yeah, yeah also unheard of, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they weren't related, so that's another thing. What? <laughs> also, mind blown. I know. And when I was in college, I took an ancient Egypt uh, art history class. And a lot of people think she was Nubian, which is another huge thing, too, that she married an Egyptian pharaoh. And so you should do yourself a favor and Google her because she's just amazing. Yeah, I like just barely glanced over her last night while I was putting some stuff together. And like, I didn't know any of this. I'm going to have to go on a deep dive. Yeah, she's just phenomenal. So she ruled with her husband for 38 years until Hemotep III's death in 1353 BCE. Uh, he was 54 and she was only 48. But then she assumed the role of the king's mother, which kind of brings us back to this other guy. So detour over. <laughs> nice. So Hemotep IV was also the husband of the notorious Queen Nefertiti. Huh. Ooh, uh, and he was the father to both Tutankhamun, who he had with a lesser wife named Kaya. And then he was also the father to Tut's wife, Anksunamun, which I'm probably saying horribly wrong. And he had her with Nefertiti, who is his chief wife. So a lot of times in these courts, the king had a chief wife, and then he had a bunch of lesser wives, and then he had concubines. So if that makes any sense. So it's very incesty, and we'll get into Tut later with his incesty sister wife. Anyway, uh, so his reign as Imhotep the Fourth lasted only five years, and during that time, he actually followed the same policies of his father, and he kept with the traditional religions of Egypt. 
But in the fifth year, he did a complete 180 and decided that the god Amun was out and this new god Aten was in. So over the next 12 years, he became infamous as the heretic king who fucked up the only religion Egypt had ever known and created the first monotheistic religion in history. Thanks, guy. Dun, dun, dun. So, and then he decided that Thebes wasn't doing it for him, so he moved the seat of power from there to a palace he built in a city that he founded for himself called Akhenaten. Okay. Oh, yeah. So then naturally he changed his name to Akhenaten to match the place he founded. And then I'm going to do that one day, just like start my own <laughs> city and just be like, fuck you guys. <laughs> this is my new place. This is my new name. We match. Yes. So his reign is also known as the Amarna period because he moved the capital of Egypt from the traditional site in Thebes to a city he founded, Akhetaten, but then it became known as Armana, also Telamarna. Hmm. Uh, so fun fact, the Amarna period is the most controversial era in Egyptian history and has been studied, debated, and written about more than any other era. That's cool. Yeah. In hindsight, historians praise Akhenaten's reforms as the first instant of monotheism, which, if you don't know, that just means you believe in one god. Yeah. And it also should be noted that this was 700 years before Isaiah of the Bible. So this is a long time before Christianity is even a thought. Sweet. I was going to ask about that. I couldn't remember the exact timeline. Yeah. But Sigmund Freud, our our man from episode one, uh, <laughs> he argued that Moses was actually an Egyptian who had been adherent to the cult of Aten and was driven from Egypt following Akhenaten's death. So Sigmund Freud followed the very uh, minimal <laughs> argument that Moses was actually uh, influenced by this sun god to create the Christian god. And so. probably loved his mom. <laughs> probably. Anywho, monotheism might be bright and shiny now, but for Egyptians at the time, he was literally the worst. <laughs> they did not like him. <laughs> These old deities of Egypt, they had actually encouraged peace, balance, and harmony, and it's one of the most developed ancient cultures the world has ever known. There was actually no word for religious intolerance at that time because there was, it was not considered an issue that even needed a name. But Akhenaten's new religion was built on this belief that in order to be right, the other system had to be wrong. And it became pretty intolerant pretty quick. And he worked really hard to suppress them. So this is the first instance of religious intolerance in Egypt. The names of the god Amun and other gods were violently chiseled from monuments throughout Egypt. The temples were closed and old practices were outlawed. Priests of Amun at the time that had the resources actually hid um, statues and texts from the palace guards that were sent to destroy them. Akhenaten ordained the new priest for his new religion, or he simply forced the priests of Amun to serve his new god. He actually proclaimed himself and his queen gods. So no one before Akhenaten had actually proclaimed himself an actual god incarnate. As a god, he seems to have felt that the affairs of state were beneath him, and he simply stopped attending all his responsibilities. <laughs> <laughs> One of the many unfortunate results of Akhenaten's religious reforms was the neglect of foreign policy. So, also not the good. No. 
documents and letters of the time show that other nations, especially allies, wrote numerous times asking Egypt for help in various affairs, and most of these requests were ignored or denied by the deified king. Egypt was a wealthy and prosperous nation at the time and had been steadily growing in power since the reign of Queen Hatshepsut. What? <laughs> um, she was also a pharaoh, not a queen. Hell yes. Uh, later, she was just like, fuck this. I'm not a queen. Uh, God told me I'm a pharaoh. She put on the little beard thing. And yes. Like, what? Yes, I was about to bring up the beard. Yes. Yeah, she was just like, fuck yeah, I'm a, I'm a pharaoh. I'm not just a queen. So her and her successors, such as Tutmosis III, employed a balanced approach to diplomacy and the military in dealing with foreign nations. Akhenaten chose to ignore what was happening beyond the borders of Egypt, and uh, things started to go downhill pretty quick. And he essentially fucked up all the hard work everybody before him had done. Yikes. So, also, not the good. <laughs> so there's a whole lot more on Akhenaten and his actual reign, but for time's sake, I'm not going to go into any of that. Um, but I'm going to go into the art, which is what this whole weird segment is going to be about. Mm-hmm. So the art of the Armana period deviates drastically from the art before and after his time. So, um, so Egyptian art had this, uh, there was like a template. So if you see any kind of hieroglyphs, there's the, you know, stylized characters. They're all standing kind of profile, but the face is front. And he completely threw that out and created his own thing. Oh. Yeah. So, unlike any other thing, the art from the Amarna period depicts the royal family with elongated necks and arms and spindly legs. And some of their heads are shaped kind of like a cone head. I don't know if you younger people ever watched SNL back when the cone heads were a thing, but very, very tall and elongated heads as well. So I mentioned earlier that I watched Ancient Aliens for scholarly research, of course. And they describe these images as otherworldly encounters and describe them as having elongated faces and heads, protruding bellies, and chicken legs. Which I thought was funny. Like aliens. (laughs) They believe that the alien-like features is proof that they were actually aliens. And that the sun disc that's represented above Akhenaten and all his art is actually a UFO. uh, Okay, so I just... I just googled Armana art and look and I'm looking at it and it's like real weird. The heads are real strange. Yes, they they are legit very they look very alien like. But there's a reason. <laughs> I promise. All right. Cool. So, I was also pleased that the guy with the crazy hair from all the memes going aliens. He was actually in this episode so that made me really happy. Yes. First, scholars thought that the king suffered from a genetic disorder called Marfan syndrome and that that would account for all the oddly proportioned depictions. But spoiler alert for my next story, this is all disproven by DNA analysis. So a much more likely reason for this style of art is very intentional and it went along with his religious beliefs. The idea is that the elongation of the figures in these images was meant to show how this huge human transformation happened when Akhenaten was touched by the power of Aten. Oh. The famous image of Akhenaten, which I actually own, and it's right here if you're on Patreon and you can see my picture. Love it. <laughs> it shows that him with his entire family. So 
him, including Nefertiti and their children, all have the same elongated head and bodies. Which, if it was a genetic disorder, it wouldn't make sense because Nefertiti wasn't related to him. Um, that's what most scholars all agree on. So, because they wouldn't all have the same disorder, that doesn't make a lot of a sense to people. So, it's likely an illustration of the transformation to a godlike status that they all had by being touched by Aten. And then they show the kids like that to show that their faith is so strong that even their children are born like that. Huh. Okay. Some cultures do the, like, head wrapping to elongate their skulls. I wonder if they did that. Everything that I've ever read on this is just that it was an artistic, stylized. It was meant to differentiate him from everybody else. Cool, cool, cool. But if you think of the famous bust of Nefertiti, like, she doesn't look like that. And a lot of other things, um, especially after the reign of Akhenaten, everything goes back to the way it was. So anything that was depicted after that, like Nefertiti and their kids, they don't look like that. So, oh. But there's also another idea that Akhenaten is depicted as this androgynous figure. Scholars took this feminine form, like he had larger hips, a pregnant like belly, and then he actually had like small breasts. So they thought that it was supposed to be like an intentional feminization of his body. But like I said, DNA tests proved that this wouldn't have actually been his form. So this thought is that because he was actually the god Aten, he was simultaneously both male and female and neither male and female. So, so very androgynous. Absolutely, yeah. So he's probably pretty progressive with doing huh. away with gender completely. So he's neither and both. That That's really cool. Yeah, it does. Yeah, and especially because like in that cultural in that culture both men and women wore makeup. So mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, it was a very intro. That's awesome. Yeah, if you think about it, a lot of the stuff he was spitting, people hated, but today it would be completely normal. Yeah. <laughs> so you think yeah. like non-binary, and you think about monotheistic religions. This is completely normal for us today, but back then everybody was, ooh, this is too crazy. Yeah. That's nuts. Okay, cool. Yeah, so another aspect of the Amarna period art that differentiates it from earlier and later periods is the intimacy of the images. So the one that I'm going to post pictures of, the one that I have with me, shows a family just enjoying each other's company, like in a private moment. And any picture of a pharaoh before and after that doesn't show that. The pharaohs are seen in battle or, you know, being official with his queen. So this is the first time we just showed them being normal families. So a lot of people explain this by showing that his religious beliefs in Aten was so important that... Because he had the love and grace of Aten, he was able to thrive as a pharaoh and as a family. So Cool. Yeah. So whether or not you think Akhenaten is a hero or a villain in Egypt's history, he's actually very important because the ideal of monotheism just changed, you know, the history of world civilization as we know it. Unfortunately for him, that didn't work out for his legacy because he was considered a heretic and an enemy of Egypt, and he was promptly erased from history by his successors, and he was actually unknown in Egyptian history until the discovery of Amarna in the 19th century. Huh. Well, that's, okay, that's good to know. Yeah! And now he's, especially with the discovery of King Tut, people know a lot more about him, but before then, nobody really knew who he was, because successors were 
just frantically trying to undo everything he did. Yeah, that makes sense, though. But, oh, my God, like, I'm learning so much. I don't know. My brain is on fire. (laughs) And I'm going to go into the second part of this in my next story because they're kind of connected. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's very interesting. The art is very... I'll post a lot of pictures on Instagram and Facebook, but yeah, he does look like an alien, but I think it was intentional. He was really trying to distance himself from anything that had ever been happened before. And uh, he was trying to make it a thing. And Egypt's like, we're not making that a thing. So that is beautiful. Yeah. Like I went into this thinking of him as the villain of the story, but I kind of think he's a little bit of a hero. Yeah. I think in today's standards, you know, like I said, historians looking back, he paved the way for one God in religion. So it's, he's just way ahead of his time. And I'm not exactly, I mean, nobody knows because it wasn't written down. But, you know, for five years, he was doing everything the way it was. And all of a sudden, he's like, nope, we're changing it. <laughs> yeah, I could see how that would be a little jarring. Yeah, throw out your gods. We got a new one. <laughs> like, it's a... Uh, Walking through the streets with the death cart. Bring out the <laughs> gods. <laughs> it's very interesting. I wish we would know more. But like I said, people were not happy. And they destroyed a lot of the information that would probably give us the clues we need to know what really happened. Cool. And like why he did that. But yeah, there's a lot of theories at this point. But luckily, because of the DNA testing that I'm going to talk about next, we know that this wasn't a genetic deformity that this was a choice (laughs) he made the choice to look like that so okay cool yeah and i like definitely have a question during the dna portion but i'm gonna save it Uh, but yeah i think uh, it's so annoying to me that everybody makes everything to be aliens like if you don't understand something in history it's obviously aliens and it just blows my mind like i I think people don't realize how important art history is to history (laughs) like yes he made a conscious decision to look like that for a reason. It doesn't mean that he was under the influence of extraterrestrials, but <sighs> it's the same thing. as like Mesoamerica. You know, they're like, oh, they weren't intelligent enough to build these pyramids. Oh, it was aliens. Just, people don't give these people enough credit. Hold on to that energy because we're going to we're going to jump into it in a moment. <laughs> yes. Aliens. So, should I jump into my uh, funny AF then? Yes! Okay, so I'm going to go ahead and admit, kind of like when I did the drunk statesman stories, I didn't do, like, a ton of looking into it. We're just going to rabble-rouse for a second about this topic. Hell yeah! So, Egyptian conspiracy theories. Oh my god! (laughs) I've got three. And I don't have... Any, like, specific dates or anything, but we just have to, we have to scream about these for a second. Okay, Okay. so, the first one, and I'm, like, hitting my laptop and shaking my vapor stick, (laughs) because I'm just, like, I'm so passionate. But anyway, okay, so the first theory, the pyramids were built by aliens. Oh, my God. Now. I have so many thoughts. (laughs) Right? So, I was, like, growing up, I was not a fan of this theory. Until I saw ancient aliens with the fucking dude with the crazy hair and the hands. And I'm making the hands motion and no one can see me unless you're on Patreon. Shameless plug. It, oh my God. So like, 
I I sat down and was like, okay, I'm going to watch this cuckoo guy for like a minute. It was like an hour and a half episode and I was sucked in. So here's the like, all right. So a lot of the like hieroglyphs and stuff and um, the pottery and sculptures ha- are of winged crafts like helicopters or spaceships or airplanes, that kind of thing. So, of course, conspiracy theorists say that, oh, that's because aliens came down from the sky and built pyramids. (laughs) Joke's on them because it was probably the slaves hauling all this stuff because it's always the slaves hauling all this stuff and building this piece by piece. But, yeah, that's, that's a whole other thing that gets me, like, a lot of hieroglyphs about the building of the pyramids shows slaves pulling the blocks on wood and people with pots pouring something onto the ground in front of it. And some of the historical things I've seen were like, oh, they were doing that because they were anointing the ground. No, they were literally wetting the sand so it was easier to move the stones. Mm-hmm. So it's, I I don't know. I, I have a whole, it's, kind of like my whole Christopher Columbus is an asshole thing like <laughs> it it's uh, just like with the Moai it's it's never fucking aliens people are capable of doing these just because you think they're primitive and all that doesn't mean that they're a thing so I actually like typed something up and then completely went off but anyway I mean uh, also if you think about it they believed in a lot of gods that flew so it makes sense that they're depicting probably something as part of their mythology and not depicting aliens yes and like what gets me is egypt through this like mass quantity of dynasties kind of paved the way in a lot of areas like writing and mathematics and Mm -hmm. language and surgery and medicine like like i said earlier i googled for 30 minutes how they used to use moldy bread to treat wounds (laughs) and like that ended up leading to the discovery of penicillin oh absolutely so like it's so fascinating yeah so you're telling me that people who were smart enough to do this couldn't figure out how to build a fucking pyramid without an alien stepping in yeah and these pyramids were just geometrically perfect and they align with astronomy yes yes they they align with the stars belt yeah yeah um these people are just smarter than us. We don't need to yell aliens every time we feel dumb compared to Yeah, them. and I mean, because, you know, you have all the, like, Greek astronomers and stuff, and the Greeks came into Egypt and married in, and, like, it's not mm-hmm. it's not outside the realm of possibility. There's also a, a conspiracy theory I saw that I, I'm not going to talk about in depth, but that cocaine was found with one mummy, and it was dated before the first documented time that an Egyptian traveled to the Americas. So, yeah, it's a whole thing. So they were like, oh, <laughs> so aliens must have brought them cocaine. I don't know. It's weird. <laughs> that, is, that is such a random thing that the aliens would bring you. It's weird. So, yeah, so, like, the they these theorists think that aliens just, like, casually swooped in, dropped something random on, on Earth, and then were like, Audi 5000, like, I'm out. And I get it. I've seen some ancient aliens where it shows, like, it looks like they're in a spaceship and stuff, but... Like, you know, like my last story, they were very stylized and they, it was telling a story, not necessarily, none of these pharaohs are going to be depicted the way they actually looked. They wanted to look otherworldly because they thought they were gods or they thought that they were, you know, 
going to be gods when they died. So, of course, they're going to be exaggerating a Exactly. <laughs> yeah, and I really don't think it's outside of the realm of possibility that these people could see, like, envision some kind of air travel and depict that, you know, like... They're <laughs> very smart. Yeah. But I think oh, yeah. recently, in the last couple of years, they actually found, like, a camp beside the pyramids where the pyramid builders would have been staying. So I think that really adds to, you know, the realism. But they were actually paid and well-fed, so that's actually yeah. pretty cool. So, yeah, so, like, the um, the hieroglyphs from the era that they were built in that show, like, the airplanes and helicopters and all that, which, like, also... Why would an alien bring a helicopter from space? Those aren't spacecraft, <laughs> but whatever. Whatever. So these are all found in the temple of Seti at Abydos. Abydos? Abydos. Let's go with that. But yeah, so here, here's the second theory that I think kind of goes hand in hand with this. And you've already touched on it. It's that the pharaohs were alien-human hybrids. I came across that a lot, actually, because there's yes. another conspiracy theory that Nefertiti was an alien hybrid. Yes. Because people don't know who her parents were. Um, it's so just, obviously an alien. Yeah. Obviously. <laughs> but yeah, I, I don't think so. I think they were human. I I mean, I believe in alien. I mean, okay. I won't, I won't say that. <laughs> I do. I, I believe I, in aliens. I, I do believe, not believe in pyramids. Yeah, I believe that it would be a waste of space if we are the only life forms in this entire universe. Like, I think that there's probably life somewhere. Whether I don't think they came here to build pyramids. I, I don't. I think that ancient civilizations were incredibly intelligent and mastered mathematics before you know, other civilizations. That doesn't make mean the aliens did. It just means that they were really smart. <laughs> exactly. I definitely believe in aliens, but I do not believe that. So here's what I'm proposing. I think we should take these two conspiracy theories and like wonder twin power, activate them together and say that while the aliens came down here, they were like, okay, we're going to build these pyramids. We're going to bone your mom. And then we're going to, like, <laughs> pop over and build, like, Stonehenge or maybe, like, Newgrange or Toltec Mound, something, and just, like, do some drop some bomb-ass, like, crop circles in Britain <laughs> on the way out. Like, they're, like, popping wheelies in a cornfield in their space <laughs> helicopter. So, yes. <laughs> so, I, like, and I, oh I love the idea. And because of that artwork during his time, like, it just, it makes it even better. And, uh, like, they found a coin that I think someone had planted that had, like, an alien being on one side. And they were like, yeah. oh, it's a pharaoh. It was, it was bullshit. But, like, the language on it was, like, Latin. And they were like, no, bro, that's not, no. Also, when you watch ancient, ancient aliens, you should look, like, people will be talking. And one time, me and Zeke were watching, and the guy was a podiatrist. And, like, they put his name a podiatrist. But, like, you normally don't look at their specialties if you're not really paying attention. He was just, yeah. like, an alien enthusiast. He wasn't a specialty. But if you look at any of them, none of them are actual specialists. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's really weird. But, like, what do you what do you study to become an alien specialist? I don't know. It kept saying, like, a sh astronaut something. What was <sighs> Astronaut was enthusiast? I don't something know. like that. I don't know. But there's, like, parapsychologists that just study, like, paranormal uh -oh. and stuff. 
So I'm sure there's something that's like aliens. But yeah, Um, as far as actual peer-reviewed scholarly articles, aliens aren't on board. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, and I feel like there's a much better way for aliens to spend their time. But anyway, so here is my third and final conspiracy. It's kind I think it might be my favorite besides the whole rant we just went on. Scarlett Moffat went on a British television show to talk about how the pyramids of Giza were built by time travelers. What makes this the best is that before she went on the show, she tried to contact Stephen Hawking (laughs) to talk about this and he ignored her. Oh, good. Good for you, dude. Oh, but there is a but, and it is a big one. So after she went on the show and talked about it and made her argument, and here, I'm going to, like, read you word for word what she said. My body is ready. (laughs) Bring it on. So in order to travel back in time, we have to go faster than light. The speed of light is the same latitude point as the tip of the Great Pyramid of Cheops. The speed of light is, like, 319 and then loads of numbers. It's exactly the same latitude point as the tip of the Great Pyramid. So I think someone from the future realized we need the pyramids and went back in time and built them. And after Stephen Hawking heard this and thought about it, he emailed her and was like, bitch, you might be onto something. Oh, wait, what? That's a Yes, he actually supported this conspiracy theory and said it was plausible. Whoa. And, like, obviously, nothing has been confirmed yet, but we will see. So, like, this woman wins in my conspiracy book because she was literally backed up by Stephen fucking Hawking. I'm questioning everything I know right now. I know! I Like, I was like, oh, this is a funny one to talk about. Ha <laughs> ha, what? Stephen Hawking? Uh, okay, because I was like, oh, yeah, Stephen Hawking probably, like, dressed her down, like, listen here. But no, he, like, fully supported it and said that it was plausible. Huh. I, hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh. So time travelers are aliens because uh, we have to blame it on anything but the actual labor of slaves. I think that, logically, I would imagine that that number might be the speed of light, but it Probably signifies something else really important. Yes. I would imagine. I mean, I know its placement was very important to align with the stars, but I mean, when you think that the height was planned. Yeah, they did the math. Yeah, they had to. And like going back to the whole aliens built the pyramids and the pharaohs are alien hybrids. Like how fucked up would it be if aliens came down, built these had kids, and then we're like, okay, we're going to leave now, but when you die, you can just, like, hang out in my house that I just built and left. <laughs> it's just, it's just fucking weird. I mean, I, <sighs> I mean, they're fun conspiracy theories, but, yeah. I mean, honestly, I think the Egyptians were just extra. Like, look yes. at my tomb, bitch. They wanted the whole world to be like, look what I can do. Like, I yeah. think that's more logical to me to be like, I need everybody for the rest of the human time race or whatever to be like, look what I can do. It was a giant flex. They were flexing. (laughs) They were like, what my slaves can do. Yes. No, I I absolutely love it. So yeah. So that is my rant about conspiracy theories for my funny AF. 
Yeah, I think conspiracy theories are hilarious and I enjoy them, but I think a lot of the times, like, do you ever think that if European nations had created pyramids, like, do you think people would question it? Is it the fact that this is Africa? Is this the fact that this is Mexico that people are like, hmm? I don't know. Oh, I guarantee it. Yeah, because in that same episode about the pyramids, they also talked about um, like Machu Picchu and places like that being also built by aliens. And mm-hmm. it was just this whole shenanigans. And like, I know that a lot of times history favors the winner. Yeah. And so they want to downplay like all of that. But yeah, like, let's not walk on the backs of slaves to reach for the stars literally and say aliens did it yeah i think it's uh it really downplays all the blood sweat and tears that went into making something like that yes also i like i love can you imagine being the architect that created a pyramid and then looking down wherever they're at being like come on i did that not a fucking alien (laughs) right i hope he like pulls his onion eyeball out and throws it at him (laughs) Yeah, I would be frustrated in my afterlife. I'm like, God damn it, I did that. Not not an alien. I was smart. Right? He need they need to like come haunt haunt us and let us know. Not us personally, but like someone in general. <laughs> yeah, it's like you speak for yourself. I don't like need the, some. <laughs> the hair guy from Ancient Aliens. <laughs> yes. Oh my god. Like it's entertaining. I will give them that. But I think aliens probably just pass by us and they're like, Nope, <laughs> moving on. <laughs> like that meme that I see floating around that's like when aliens drive past Earth, they roll up their windows and lock the door. They're like, I'm not going to be a part of this dumpster fire. Nope. That is a good call, aliens. Just keep on motoring. Yeah. I Like, do I think that there's probably some top secret government shit like they know something? Yes. Do you think... I I would be more prone to believe that the stealth bomber came from aliens and the pyramids. That's yes, just me too. <laughs> yeah. I think that some of those things make more sense, but yeah, I just think it's uh, unfortunate that I don't know. They were just so smart. Yes. Yeah. But I will still watch the shit out of every show that shows like alien spacecrafts caught on film. <laughs> I'm absolutely yes. fascinated. Absolutely. I find it really interesting but I also don't want to fuck with an alien. Like, no, I don't want to see that. I've seen signs. I don't. I don't want to. <laughs> Cloverfield. I have an obsession with like alien movies and yeah. That, so yeah, I no, I am interested in it, but I don't want them to come anywhere near me. Fun fact: My husband hates alien stuff, and if I'm watching something alien, he leaves. <laughs> That's how I am with demon stuff, because I feel like if I <laughs> listen or watch anything with demons, that I'm inviting it into my life, and I'm like, nope, 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 nope. Oh, yeah, I definitely yelled at a teen the other day, because he was like, Miss Ashley, guess what I was Googling? I was like, what? He said, I was Googling the demon. No. And I was like, don't even say his name! Yeah, and he, like, was real confused. Like, I was a real white girl about it, so. Yeah, No. Like I said, my last episode, it, I'll turn it off. The podcast talk about demons because yes. I'll accidentally summon one. I can't. I just, I just can't. Just, but, just grab your rubberies. <laughs> so, natural transition. The last yes. 
Yay! I had a random AF and Ashley gave me the word knife. <laughs> Woo! So, this, it, it makes sense. Just bear with me. <laughs> <laughs> King Tut! <laughs> so, King Tutankhamun ruled Egypt as a pharaoh for 10 years until his death at only 19, which is sad, which was around 1324 BCE. So, he was a very young king. Although his role was notable for reversing the old religious reforms of his dad, Akhenaten, who we just talked about, Tut's legacy was kind of canceled by his successors. Ooh, sad. He was not really known until 1922 when the British archaeologist Howard Carter chiseled through the doorway and entered into the boy pharaoh's tomb, which had remained sealed for more than 3,200 years. That's such a long time. That's a long time. <laughs> So the tomb was actually untouched by grave robbers for the most part, and it held a ton of artifacts and treasures. And uh, those were all the things that were intended to accompany him in his afterlife, like we talked about in the mummification segment. They all tie together. Yeah, I really appreciate how how all of your stuff is coalescing. (laughs) And then in the middle, I'm just like waving my hands and screaming. Uh, All right, so because it was the first intact tomb found, it revealed an incredible amount about the royal life in ancient Egypt, and it quickly made King Tut the world's most famous pharaoh. So, even though his in life he wasn't very remarkable, today he's the most recognizable pharaoh, just because he was the only one to be found completely intact. Nice. If that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. So, back to his life. Early in his reign, he reversed Akhenaten's reforms, revived the polytheistic religion, and worshipped the god Amun, restored Thebes as the religious center, and he changed his name to distance himself from old daddy and the god Aten. So he went from... Oh, hold on. I know, it's the worst. I need to look at name. All right, so he went from Tutank Aten to yes. Tutank Amun. Okay. Yes. I had to look at the name theater, right? <laughs> okay. He also worked alongside some powerful advisors, Haremheb and I, which both became pharaohs after his death. And he also worked really closely with his mother, Nefertiti, who may have actually helped Tut rule in the early years. Some scholars believe that Nefertiti actually became her husband's official co-regent under the name Neferu Aten which literally means beautiful are the beauties of Aten, a beautiful woman has come. Oh, it's quite the name. It is. I'll take that name. Right? Yeah, my, my name means from the ash tree meadow. <laughs> take that, Nefertiti. Total side note, my name means the feminine of Conan. My dad literally named me after Conan the Barbarian. So, there's that. <laughs> Thanks, <laughs> it was dad. The only, it was the only name he would agree to, so my mom kind of tricked him. Like, look how pretty it is, but it means Conan, so he was on board. All right. Nice. So, Akhenaten was actually followed by a pharaoh named Smicker. Yeah, I should have looked that up. All right. Some historians actually think that this might have been another name for Nefertiti. And this wouldn't have been crazy because in the 15th century BCE, the female pharaoh Hatshepsut ruled Egypt like a man as a pharaoh with a ceremonial false beard. So, it's not completely out of the realm that Nefertiti had been like, all right, I'm a pharaoh wore the beard, and then, you know, them not actually document her as a woman. So, 
If Nefertiti kept power during and beyond Akhenaten's last years, it's possible that she began the reversal of her husband's religious policies before Tut even came to the picture. At one point, she employed a scribe to make a divine offering to Amun, pleading him to return and dispel the kingdom's darkness. So, historical detour. On December 6, 1913, which is my birthday, what? what? A, a team led by German archaeologist Ludwig Borcht, which is like the most German name ever, <laughs> he discovered a sculpture buried upside down in a sandy rubble of the floor of an excavated workshop of a royal sculptor in Armana. Or Amarna. Yeah, sorry. The painted figure featured a slender neck, gracefully proportioned face, and a curious blue cylindrical headpiece of a style only seen in images of Nefertiti. Borch's team had an agreement to split the artifacts with the Egyptian government, so the bust was shipped to Germany. They didn't really <laughs> tell anybody they had it. Oops. They only gave a single poor photograph that was actually published in an archaeological journal, and the bust was given to the expedition's Thunder Jacques Simon, who displayed it for the next 11 years in his private residence. So, a year after Tut was discovered, Nefertiti's bust was put on display in Berlin. And throughout the 20th century, even though like the world wars were happening, they kept it protected. It was actually revered by Hitler, who said, I will never relinquish the head of the queen. And he hid her in salt mines to make sure she was saved. Huh. What? That is okay. That's an interesting nugget. I know, right? Especially because he was destroying art left and right. For real, yeah. He wanted to protect her is kind of mind blowing. So today it draws more than 500,000 visitors a year. Detour over. I just thought it was interesting. You think about Nefertiti, you think of the bust. So, yeah. Anywho, his mom was a big deal, and King Tut may have been seen as this golden boy of ancient Egypt today, but during his reign, he was not very strapping. (laughs) He was uh, tall, but physically frail, and he had a crippling bone disease and a clubbed left foot. So, he's the only pharaoh that's been depicted seated while engaging in things like archery, and he walked with a cane. So he's actually the first one that's been shown with a cane, too. So he was actually depicted with his uh, disabilities, which is really big, too. Because most of the time, they'd be depicted as, like, godlike, no matter what they look like in real life. Oh, okay. So, big fucking deal. So a new DNA study says that King Tut was weak. He was plagued by several strands of malaria, and he had a bone disorder. So, paired with the newly discovered incestual origins, Egyptologists have concluded that his health was just plain fucked. Yikes. Yeah, Darwin would have a field day with that. Yes. This was actually the first DNA study ever conducted with ancient Egyptian royal mummies. And it apparently solved several mysteries surrounding King Tut, including how he died and who his parents were. So, before this DNA test, nobody knew that. So... DNA tests published in 2010 revealed that Tut's parents were brother and sister and that his wife, Anaksuna Moon, was his half-sister. Regarding the revelation that King Tut's mother and father were brother and sister, a scholar said inbreeding is not an advantage for biological or genetic fitness. Normally, the health and the immune system are reduced and malformations increase. So, 
add that to your no shit. Yeah, no shit, Sherlock. <laughs> Thank you, Captain Obvious. All right. And because Tut's remains had a hole in the back of the skull, um, a lot of times people assume that was because of an assassination. But these tests actually show that the hole was made during mummification. A CT scan in 1995 showed that the king had an infected, broken left leg, and the DNA from his mummy revealed that he had those multiple malarial infections, all of which probably contributed to his early death. So, it wasn't an assassination. He was just very sickly. Yeah, he was just real screwed up. Sorry, bro. <laughs> He's having a whole lot going on. Yes. So after he died, King Tut was mummified according to the religious tradition, and a 24-pound solid gold portrait mask was placed over his head and shoulders, and he was laid in a series of nested containers, three golden coffins, a granite sarcophagus, and four gilded wooden shrines, the largest of which barely fit into the tomb's chambers. Oh, so, okay. Which is very interesting because his tomb is really small. <laughs> Like, compared to most sparrows. So, we'll get into that in a second. Oh, no, we won't, because I just, it's right here. <laughs> <laughs> because of his tomb's small size, historians suggest that King Tut's death must have been very unexpected, and that his burial was rushed. So, the tomb's antechamber, which was packed to the ceiling with more than 5,000 artifacts, including furniture, chariots, clothes, and weapons, and it also included 130 of his walking sticks because of his bum leg, you know. That's a lot of walking sticks. It is. I guess he had one of every color and size. I, I do like to accessorize, so I yeah. can't. I mean, some of them are probably very shiny. Probably yes. like diamond-plated. Pimp stick. <laughs> yes. So the entrance of the corridor was apparently looted soon after his burial, but the inner rooms remained sealed. The pharaohs who followed followed the <laughs> the pharaohs who followed Tut chose to ignore his reign, uh, even despite his work restoring Amun, and he was tainted by the connection of his father's religious upheavals. So within a few generations, he was pretty much forgotten, and the entrance had been clogged with stone debris. By the time he discovered Tutankhamun in 1922, British archaeologist Howard Carter had been excavating Egyptian antiquities Jesus, for three decades. At that time, they thought they had found everything in the Valley of the Kings. So they were very excited about finding a new tomb. And the image of Tut just spread worldwide. And it took Carter and his team a decade to catalog and empty the tomb. Which... That's kind of impressive, too, if you think about yeah, it. That's a lot of shit. Artifacts from his tomb toured the world in several blockbuster museum shows, including a worldwide 1972-79 to 79 Treasures of Tutankhamun exhibit. Eight million visitors in seven U.S. cities viewed the exhibition, and 50 other precious items of the tomb were shown, and his burial mask was shown. Today, the most fragile artifacts, including the burial mask, no longer leave Egypt. They made it kind of like a wall that it's not allowed to leave anymore. And his mummy is actually on display within the tomb. And he's in a climate-controlled glass box. So, if you go see Tut, he's in there. Cool, cool, cool. Yeah, so, of these artifacts was a knife. What? That is awesome. Tying it into the random word. What? Okay. 
So the dagger had a sheath that was made nice. of gold. Okay, cool. Nailed yeah. it. <laughs> Nailed it. The blade was silverish, but oddly it hadn't tarnished in three millennia. Experts thought at first that it was iron, but they were really confused because iron knives weren't actually used in Egypt until 100 years after Tut's death. So, big mystery. Experts also knew that this knife was significant because the dagger was buried next to Tut and was actually wrapped in the mummy in his leg. So, like, it was in his wrappings. Does that make sense? It was an x-ray that discovered this knife. Okay, yeah, 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 that's really cool. Yeah, so they found it in an x-ray, which I'm going to add the x-ray to our pictures so you can actually see the knife by his leg. It's really interesting. So determine what the knife really was, Daniela Comelli, a professor of material sciences at the Polytechnic University of Milan, used a procedure called x-ray fluorescent spectrometry to determine what it was actually made of. So do you have any guesses what it is? Uh, meteorite. Oh, shit, you got it. <laughs> yes, I, that was a total guess. Yes, I'm awesome. Okay. This is the only time that it was actually extraterrestrial. Yes. Oh, my God. So, yeah, it was forged out of meteorite iron, specifically a mix of iron, nickel, and cobalt, a typical mix of metals found in meteorites. Surprisingly, there's actually references to meteors in Egyptian writing. They called it iron from the sky, and there were other items made from it in Tut's treasures. So knowing about meteorites and that they were a natural occurrence and could be actually used in their materials put Egyptians far ahead of other cultures, which is also really interesting. That's cool. Side note, Anthony Bourdain also had a knife made of meteorite. Oh, I love him. I do, too. I was thinking about him the other day. But, yes, I had to share that. All right. So, back to DNA tests. Yes. Now that I got the random word knife out of the way. I love it. (laughs) Not only did the DNA mark the first time Egyptian government allowed genetic studies to be performed, it actually, like, answered a lot of mysteries surrounding who Tut's family was. Because at that time, they didn't really know who his parents were. They didn't know what family tree he was in. So they used DNA samples from the mummy's bones of several unidentified mummies that they had. And they were able to create a five-generation family tree for Tut's family. That's a lot, yeah. Yeah, so they found a lot of mummies that were really close to King Tut. So they assumed that he was related, but at that point, they didn't know a whole lot. So... They So they looked for the shared genetic sequences of the Y chromosome, and it's a bundle of DNA that's only passed from father to son. And they were able to identify King Tut's male ancestors. So they were able to determine that the mummy that was known as KV-55 was actually Akhenaten himself, and that he oh, was, cool. in fact, his father. What? Yeah. They oh, were- I love DNA. I know. They were able to find out that KV-35 was King Tut's grandfather, the pharaoh Imhotep III. Preliminary DNA evidence also indicated that two stillborn fetuses entombed with King Tut were actually his daughters, and that he followed them with his chief queen, Anaxudamun, whose mummy uh, was also identified. Also, a mummy that was previously known as the Elder Lady has been identified as Queen T., who is King Tut's grandmother and the wife of Amenhotep III. 
Fun fact, she was discovered with perfectly preserved hair and an almost lifelike face. And they said that her DNA was the most beautiful DNA that was ever seen from an ancient specimen. Huh. Ruling even in the afterlife. Right? Such a badass. They said that, you know, preserving DNA wasn't the aim of Egyptian priests, but the embalming method actually became really lucky for them because it preserved it and protected it as well as the flesh. So, I mean, obviously they couldn't have predicted it. We'd need DNA, but the method of mummification made it perfect for using DNA samples today. Nice. And uh, they found King Tut's mother, who at that time they'd been calling the younger lady. And uh, uh, before this, they had actually speculated that King Tut's mother was Akhenaten's chief wife, Nefertiti. Mm-hmm. But uh, the DNA evidence, you know, suggests that that wasn't actually his biological mother. So that's actually pretty cool because she would have helped him reign and acted as his mother and took the title of king's mother. But she wasn't his biological mother. His mother would have been one of the lesser wives. That's awesome. So. Sorry. Reggie just distracted me for a second. <laughs> no. And that is that. Awesome. Dude, I've learned so much today. I'm like so pumped. I know. I love ancient Egypt. It makes me so happy. I'm sure we'll definitely like revisit this topic several times because I mean, it's such a vast amount of information. Oh, absolutely. Um, I only really touched on the 18th dynasty, so there's way more to get into. Heck, yeah. Awesome. Cool, know, cool, cool. Very exciting. And they're really interesting. Like, I've always been kind of like, eh, King Tut didn't really do a whole lot. But he didn't live very long, so he didn't have the opportunity to really do a whole lot. Yeah, yeah. Only reason he's famous is because his tomb wasn't, you know, destroyed. But it's probably... It's kind of one of those things, like, if he would have lived a long time, he would have had a big, elaborate tomb, and it would have got robbed. But because he lived such a short time, they had to hurry up his burial, and uh, nobody found him, so. Yeah, so that, like, really worked in his favor, or I guess in historian's favor, not his favor. He died young. Uh, Mm -hmm. But, yeah. Okay, cool. And I know, like, I've read accounts. I can't remember what Pharaoh it was, but they had, like, their prized war horse killed and also mummified with them oh yeah and stuff like that so like and king tut didn't really have that option because he just didn't like live long enough i guess yeah and i'd read some stuff like back when i was a kid and i was obsessed with egypt the idea was like he died in like a chariot accident or an assassination so it's really interesting that everything's changed because in the last couple of decades dna analysis has been an option but i had read that possibly it was nefertiti's tomb and that they just kind of threw him in it because they just needed somewhere to put him yeah that makes sense yeah so it's probably it was existing and that's probably why it was so small too because pharaohs usually had giant chambers and his is very modest yeah to say the least so that's pretty interesting but then conspiracy theory killed so many people when it was opened but not True. really. I mean, I would still say it was probably all that bacteria. All that. Yeah. It was sealed really tight. Yes. <laughs> so when they opened it, I'm sure I'm sure some spores got in some people's lungs. Gotta be. 
I mean, now they know that if you go into a tomb, you wear a mask. <laughs> like, they didn't do that in the 20s. Right. <laughs> Zach Bagans leading, leading with his mask everywhere. <laughs> yeah, no, it's just really exciting. I, It's one of my bucket list places. I want to go to Egypt so bad. <laughs> yes, yeah, so our merch site launched this week. Yeah, and you can find that at shop.spreadshirt. That's S-P-R-E-A-D-S-H-I-R-T dot com slash historical AF pod. Yay! I, we have ordered our stuff, so I'm I so excited. Cannot wait to do photos with it. Um, I got something for me and my husband to make him pimp us out too. Yeah, and we got all kinds of stuff. We have our logo. We have a lot of quotes we've said from the pods. We have the engaging and some inebriated mischief shirts. We have a lot of nope stuff. So like yikes, <laughs> yikes! You can get coffee mugs. You can get all kinds of stuff. We have emotional One support piece. margarita. Yes, yes, we have tons of stuff, and I mean that'll it'll change up. So grab what you want. Uh, if you do it for the next week-ish, by the time this comes out, you will get 15% off your order? Yes! We also have a shout-out this week to Katrina Donovan. What? Thank you, Katrina. Thank you so much. Oh, I know. Thank you so much. She actually did my uh, wedding photos for my elopement. She's a big fucking deal. She is. Goddamn professional photographer. What? They are wonderful. Yes, she's great. And, like, Brianne last week, she knows some of the worst party stories of me ever. So if she says anything, don't listen to her. So if she wants to come on the show and talk about party <laughs> stories. <laughs> oh God. Yeah. There, if you're a Patreon member, I have a deleted scene about one of those stories on there. So woohoo! Yeah. jump into that and get that little nugget. Oh, Speaking of yeah. Patreon, if yes. you want to become a member, go to patreon.com slash historical AF pod. We have two tiers. We have a $2 called Fierce AF, and that is full access to a librarian's vault that has book lists based on our weekly themes. We also have a historian a bucket list that has adventures and ideas for things that uh, historical markers and museums that you can visit associated with our themes. You also get a social media shout out on our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And as always, get our undying gratitude. <laughs> Yes. Oh, yeah. So, so much gratitude. We also have Majestic AF, which is $5 a month. And you get everything from the Fierce AF Rewards, plus a monthly Q&A party. You get to vote on our weekly theme topics. You have access to bloopers, compilations, deleted scenes, extended scenes. And you get a personal shout-out on the pod. Yay. Oh, yeah. Which makes you extra awesome. Hell yeah, and we're actively working on uh, putting out a whole lot more, so. Yes, yes we will, so in the next uh, week and a half-ish area, it'll definitely ramp up, so. Whoops, I forgot something, Drunk Dives, and we're going to do Drunk Dives, mostly we're going to be watching, I know this is really hard guys, we're going to watch movies and TV shows, and then get drunk and bitch about how historically inaccurate they are. Yes, so that'll be a good ass time. 
Oh, yeah. So strap in for that nugget of fun. I have a lot of thoughts about a lot of movies. TV yes, shows. yes. And we are still collecting names for our drawing. Uh, if you love us and have given us a listen, which obviously you have if you've gotten this far, go and give us a review on Apple Podcast or Spotify or wherever, Facebook wherever you're listening and um, send us a screenshot of it at historicalafpod at gmail.com. And we are putting your name in a drawing for some pretty cool swag, which will probably come from our Spreadshirt uh, website. And it's pretty awesome. Yeah. And finally, we are going to be doing a extra AF episode and it will be part contemporary news stories, Uh, things that are happening today. And the other half is going to be listener stories. So please, please, please send us your stories, whether they are about historical places, uh, morbid, true crime, or paranormal stories. And we will read them on the air. So please send those in to historicalafpod at gmail.com. Woohoo! And then if you want to follow us on social media for the podcast itself on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We have, uh, you can find us at historical AF pod on all three of those. And then if you want to follow our personal Instagrams, my Instagram is at AJ Rulo and my Twitter is at librarian underscore AF. And my Instagram, I'm Kina, by the way, is (laughs) at, Kina Leanne, that's K-Y-N-A-L-E-A-N-N-E. And you can find me on Twitter at Pirates With. So Pirates, W-I-F. Which is the best. Uh, yeah, that's like my nickname for my husband. So yeah, it's stuck. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much. Have a fantastic week and take care of yourselves. And we love you forever and ever and always. Yay, bye. Bye.